welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. We're nearing the end of 2023, and it's that time again where we get reflective over things that have happened in the last year, but also looking forward and thinking ahead a little to a new year and a new chapter. Chris, What's the biggest thing that's happened in your life in this last year? I think I have mentioned on this podcast, I went on a Disney cruise. That was pretty big, but yes. <laughs> it was a good time. But um, I would say professionally, I moved into a new role at KRQEM, now a executive producer over there. Get to oversee a lot of the work that our reporters do on a day-to-day basis. And yeah, just it's a different chapter. on those things. Thank you. Especially yeah. the congrats. Disney cruise. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So does that include like all the characters? You know, are we talking Frozen, Sadly, the whole no. nine yards? Sadly, no. The uh, Little Mermaid, Ariel, was not there, which was very hard to believe that on a cruise ship, you would not see Ariel. So, it's like its own yeah. special cruise. Exactly. Oh, yeah. my goodness. They did well, all sorts of different characters for different <laughs> times. So anyway. If you need Disney cruise tips, Chris is your man, yeah. because this has come up frequently <laughs> on the podcast, times, yeah. I feel like. But yeah, today we're getting a chance to talk about a lot of changes and things coming down the pipeline in Albuquerque with the man who's in charge of a lot of those changes. And I just looked to verify it's been more than a year since we've had today's guest, Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller, on the podcast. So, Mayor, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Good to be back. Thank you. So we plan to cover a lot of ground with you here in today's discussion. And we know you hear from a lot of people about crime and homelessness and things that they want improved in the city. And we will certainly get questions around those topics. But first, Mayor Keller, if I can ask you, is there something in your work or outside of the 11th floor here that's happened in 2023 that you're really proud of or something that sticks out that's really something good? Outside of work? (laughs) I just want to be clear that we're in work. Yeah, Yeah, we can do both. Yeah, yeah, we can do both. All right. Well, you know, for me, I mean, look, I don't usually get questions outside of work. So you did, you you opened up with a good one there. Yeah, Yeah, you really did. You know, I have young children, so we're, our kids are in APS. And so for us, the coolest thing is our, my daughter's in fifth grade, which is like, you know, senior year of elementary school. Yeah. And so that has been amazing. Like her experience as sort of, you know, whether it's the little student council they have or the like choral practice that she's in and like things like this, this has been really cool to see her, you know, she's sort of also coming into pre-adolescence and things like that. So that by far, I've never, as a, so as a dad, I've never experienced that before. She's my oldest. Yeah. Big change. So that's been really cool. Oh yeah. Big time. It's so fun yeah. to see the growth of your children. And yeah. And this is a, so this is like a step change that, you know, a phase, right. Of, of child and parent that, that is new for me, of course, her and, and our family. So that's been by far and away. That's, I think the, the biggest change this year from last year. Yeah. Anything good within work that well, sticks out to you? I think for sure, there's a couple of things. The biggest one, you know, we announced, I'm trying to remember exactly what month it was, but I know it was this year, this Maxion company that's moving, they build solar panels and it's the first company in North America to relocate from Asia back. And they're doing it right here in Albuquerque. And this is 2000 jobs. I think it's like 1.2 billion in investment. And it's hard to think about, but the only analogy I would take it, take us back to like when I was a kid, I remember when Intel came and I remember for whatever reason, driving around Rio Rancho, I was probably my daughter's age actually. And one time, and just being like, Oh, there's this little town like outside of Albuquerque. 
And then I remember 10 years later being like, Rio Rancho is huge. And my neighbors worked at Intel and they commuted, you know, sort of the opposite into Rio Rancho. But the point is Maxion is so big. That is the effect it's going to have on the Metro. So like my daughter, you know, as long as the company doesn't fold or anything like that in 10 years for her, right? Like a quarter of her friends will live at Mesa del Sol and there's going to be 20,000 people living out there. It's the same number of economic based jobs as when Intel came and it's going to have the same impact. So when you think about like the next generation of what our city looks like and things like this, 10 years from now, I was going to be like, wow, remember when Maxion came and our city exploded with growth and things like that. That's what we announced this summer. Certainly interesting. We'll keep an eye out for that. So one of the topics that we discussed here on the podcast before with a lot of the key players involved is the United Soccer Stadium. Last month, city council voted seven to two to approve a lease agreement with the city to build a soccer stadium at Balloon Fiesta Park. Under the agreement, United will spend about $30 million to build on the seven acre plot. They'll pay the city $35,000 per year over a 30-year lease term. That's some of the basics that we know about the lease agreement. No city funds will be used for the stadium, but the city will put up $13 million in state capital outlay funding toward other upgrades at the parks. I know Peter Trevisani mentioned bathroom upgrades and things like that. We know voters rejected using bonds for this project, but we're now closer than ever to seeing a stadium built. This falls under one of those quality of life investments. So Mayor, from your perspective, how did the city arrive at Balloon Fiesta Park for this build ultimately? You know, the story of stadiums in our city is fascinating because in many ways, it's just a record on repeat. So I also remember when we tried to build a stadium downtown the first time, I think it was under Mayor Baca and voters actually turned it down. And that's why we ended up with Isotopes Park, where it is now. But of course, that was also where the old Duke Stadium was. So anyway, without sort of repeating all that, I do think an interesting theme is that one thing my administration has been able to do is we've taken what I think have been decades-long good ideas, and we found a way to actually make them happen. Because I think everyone, you know, there's general consensus that like an additional stadium is great for our families, it's a great thing to go to current setup is not sustainable because of overlapping schedules. And, you know, we love the United, even if we're not like soccer fans, we agree it's sort of good for families in Albuquerque. So the question is how to get it done. And this is where, you know, I was on the ballot for reelection when the stadium was on the ballot. So, right. you know, I was, as I always am listening to what the voters say, but certainly in an election year, and they did something I think really interesting. They reelected me and turned the stadium down downtown, which was also, you know, my idea. Yeah. I mean, you were front and center in a lot of those initial announcements. I know standing alongside Peter Trevisani in the middle of the field and even outside before the game with the fans and all the yellow hats and everything. It was clearly a project that you were very close to um, and and wanted to see something like that happen. So to kind of connect those things, what what I took it as is that is people, you know, wonderfully, uh, I'm I'm grateful for the, the, the chance for a second term. But why did they turn it down? And I think it was pretty clear why. One, they didn't want it downtown. Now, that was my preference, but I heard them. So we're not putting it downtown. So that was step one, was saying, no, we're done with downtown, respecting the voters. Two, they didn't want us to spend a lot of city money on it. And so I outlined that criteria and then told the team and uh, our team up here, I said, you know, well, 
I'm not giving up on the concept. So are there any other ideas? So that was really the birth of it is it was sort of process of elimination. You know, we had other ideas that just didn't work out. And then what's been a wonderful, I think it's not really a surprise, but look, we hadn't thought of it before. Putting it at the balloon fiesta was actually a new idea. And the concept about where it's going to be like below the power lines so that like it doesn't interfere with balloon flight already because of these giant power lines. And then this idea, it came up because we were trying to think about how to fix up the balloon fiesta for sort of the next generation too. So we're talking about bathrooms and these electrical updates and plumbing. And then it was like, well, you know what? We could put a stadium there. And the question is, you know, will the team fund it? And so they said, yes, we said yes. And sort of that's how it came together. So I think it's a good example. And we can talk about these if you want, but like the rail yards, the rail trail, even the gateway center, these are all old ideas that our community has supported in concept through multiple administrations. It's just, no one's ever been able to really get them done. And I think that's what we saw this year for the first time is all of these things I think will happen. Now it's just a question of like how fast. So a bit further of that sort of 30,000 foot view of the United Stadium investment, the idea that a public investment in a stadium is a quality of life issue. I know you addressed this in even one of your first media availabilities when this whole idea came out toward of in public. I, I think you may agree with the idea that, you know, the city has had the other potential of stadiums or other big investments here in the past, but these things often get met with disdain, right? This idea of people saying, we need to solve our other problems first before we spend all this money on a stadium or a big building or a project. And the stadium bonds, you know, as we mentioned, was voted down that same night you won re-election. And I wanted to ask, what is your take on why this project is needing to move forward and isn't just a vanity project? Mm-hmm. Sure, Will. And I, I think um, when you really unpack our sort of culture and history in some ways, you know, we've always had lots of challenges and, you know, we can talk about, we certainly have some now, so I'm not, not disputing that, but I mean, I was born and raised here. And I remember, I remember times that were worse than times we're in now, actually. I also remember times that were better. So, but I see that as context because it seems like sometimes it's like, you know, we, we can be our own worst enemy where we're always saying, you know, well, if we could just fix this one issue, crime, homelessness, you know, then we deserve something nice. And I think that's a, that's a very human reaction that I think we all sometimes feel like we sort of have to be able to do that. But I think what we've tried to stand for is, you know, we've got to be able to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. We can do this, Albuquerque, right? And I think with the right team, like the team we built at City Hall, whether it's the police chief or whether it's folks who were working on the stadium, we can do both of those things. And I think that's, that's what I've tried to stand for is, mayor in a sense that to lift up our city, we've got to be able to do these quality of life projects and not forego them just because of challenges in crime and public safety. And here's the reality behind that. So that's like the concept. The reality is from like a funding perspective, it's just totally different, right? One is a capital one-time investment. You know, the other is ongoing. One is specific to us. The other has to do with, you know, national trends like fentanyl and things like this too. So at the end of the day, it's also like, you can't really link them together. And I think it's, you know, we, we want to hope that, okay, if we could just focus on one thing, crime, it would go away, but they're not exclusionary. It's not a zero sum game. So that's something we've tried to really stand for say, Hey, we can improve the zoo, which has had its like largest expansion since its history. We can do things like this rail trail project to connect downtown and old town. And literally financially that doesn't impact crime. 
And also they're different teams. So even in terms of focus. And the last thing is they do go together if this is a great place to live, right? The more things we have to do with our families, the more areas we have to enjoy and the more we're uh, enjoying our community, actually the safer it is. And also hopefully that creates more jobs and that leads to more housing, which leads to you know a better economy that even impacts indirectly homelessness. So the answer is in common, but the problem is not. Yeah. And, and I will point to just, I mean, over the 10 years that I've or 11 years I've been here now, you know, quality of life investments, they do happen in other ways, right? They're usually driven by a lot of private cash, but like we can look at top golf as one of them quality of life type businesses that have clearly shown people have a demand or a want for that stuff. So I guess my point is, is there certainly is a demand out there, but the city in the past has always been confronted with this one or the other. And I guess what I'm getting from you is you're saying you got to do both at the same time. And ultimately when you have companies looking at the city, Maxion, I'm certainly sure wants to see stuff like what is there to do in Albuquerque? Sure. And for their workforce, they want to make sure like our population started growing this year for the first time in a decade, but we need that workforce for companies to move here. I, so I think your your point is right on. And just because this is what's so cool about your podcast is it's kind of a longer form. And so I would just add that also in Albuquerque, what's amazing about our city, it's both, you know, I view it as like the promise of Albuquerque, which is that we're the only urban area in a thousand square miles. So like people look to us for, for things that they expect in a city. And that means now it needs to be safe. Like they expect that, but it also means shopping. It means a good airport. It does mean entertainment. It means things to do for families. And that promise of Albuquerque is something that I want to deliver on. But it's also, I view it as a responsibility. Like Albuquerque has that just geographically. That's our role in New Mexico. And so you also can't avoid it, you know, or else you really are sort of just giving up on the point of like a large major metropolitan area in the middle of the state. So that's where I think this comes together in terms of that's why on the weekends, right, even our, our population swells. People are coming off from in all over the state to uptown to shop. That's a good thing, right? And our families, too, a lot of families are from rural New Mexico. It's like half the West Side is from northern New Mexico. So or has family in northern New Mexico. So, again, what are we how are we bringing people together in our city? Well, it's usually with things to do. It's also with health care. I think that's also where you see this. It's just a reality. People come here for their health care. So uh, again, that's a good thing, but it's also a responsibility to make sure we can deliver on that. One more stadium related question for you. I know there's obviously been support. We've certainly heard that, but there is also some opposition. We've heard a little bit from neighbors, I think during the EPC hearing, the Environmental Planning Commission. Some are concerned about, you know, whether it's the amount of money being spent on something like this or noise or just the transformation of the area. What do you say to people who still maybe have opposition toward the stadium? I think a couple of things. One is I do appreciate what they're saying. You know, I think we see this with anything in sort of your backyard. And I think you do have to respect it. Like you've got to understand, you know, what I want that in my backyard. And I think that's an important question. You know, I think the the flip side is it's got to go somewhere if you want it. Right. So it's always in someone's backyard. And I think just depending on where you live, you know, you unfairly essentially pick up some of that burden right? It could be like the airport's another one. I mean, because of the jet noise and things like this, that's been a constant complaint. It's kind of like, well, it's really hard to eliminate jet noise, although we even try and work on that, which is my second point. There's a lot of things we can do to mitigate the impact. 
And we do this every year in Balloon Fiesta. And that is, remember, that is way more people than a soccer game. So we, we know it's not going to be as impactful as Balloon Fiesta. We know there's plenty of parking and we know when the games are going to be and that kind of thing. So I would just say that I think the impact is it's not a Balloon Fiesta every game, right? This is like 20,000 people and compared to 100,000 people, there's a huge difference. We know the game times, we can manage traffic, we can manage sound ordinances, right? So when things turn off, we call these like good neighbor agreements. So I think we can really minimize the impact. The last thing I would say is I also just want to respect, you know, the border of the county and the city is right near the stadium. And I do think it's tough because I'm not their mayor. Like they didn't, they don't, they're not city voters, but also they're not my constituents. And I just want to acknowledge, I think that's always been a rub at Balloon Fiesta. You know, they're, I try and listen to them because I, I care about the Metro in general, but you know, that's a tough thing. And it always has been in Balloon Fiesta. Every time we try and do something, there's always this like, well, the city runs Balloon Fiesta, but I live in the County right across the Arroyo. Interesting. And yeah. I'm kind of like, well, I don't usually go to your neighborhood meetings because you're not in the city, you know? And so that's always been, that's a structural problem that made this worse. And it's, it's always been an issue with the Balloon Fiesta. So when we do think about quality of life in Albuquerque, people also think about some of the things that you mentioned, the not so great things. I'm thinking crime, homelessness. The last time we spoke to you here on the podcast, I think we spent the entire 40 minutes just talking about homelessness. So feel free to go back in your feed and listen to that full episode if you want that added context. But right now, according to the latest count, this is survey data collected specifically at the beginning of 2023. It shows there are roughly 2,394 people counted in Albuquerque experiencing homelessness. We know there are probably some issues with that data because there's a very specific narrow point in time where they're collecting this count. And that is an increase from last year. But do you think that estimate is still low? What do you make of that data? You know, we've seen all across the country, I think, homelessness continuing to be an issue. And when I go to like the conference of mayors and things like this, it's amazing how it has even surpassed crime as the number one issue. I think basically it's like homelessness, fentanyl, crime in that order for every American city. Let's say most American cities. So it continues to get worse nationally. And I think that's the case here. And, and I do, as I said last year, these numbers are grossly underreported just because of the way the study is done. And we don't have to go into sort of that, but I'm acknowledging the fact that it's a huge problem. And I know that at any given time, you know, we had uh, last week, I think we had 600 people at our Westside shelter, 600. There used to be like 75 there. Now to put that in perspective, one thing is my administration actually keeps the shelter open. It used to close during the day and it was only available on the weekends or only at winter. So in some ways it's like, okay, well, at least those 600 people are off the street. So there is like actually a positive side to a number like that. Imagine if those 600 people were on the street and that's exactly where they'd be. No one is at the West side shelter. Cause like, you know, they think it's a great place to live. These numbers show in part that we are at least facing this head on. And it has to do with being able to try and get as many people off the street as we can. So the increased numbers at the West side shelter reflect that effort. We gave over a thousand housing vouchers this year. We bought a hotel and are converting it to housing and then, of course, there's the old Loveless, the old hospital that the Gateway Center. And we know that it used to help about a thousand people a day as a hospital. And we want it to help a thousand people get off the street every day. 
And right now our numbers are about 400. They were probably only 200 last year and it's all under construction and renovation. But I think by February, we should be at 500, which is sort of halfway there. So we're providing sort of big chunk answers here, but it's taking time and the problem's still growing. And it does, you know, the underlying causes around fentanyl and around addiction, those are massive issues that city, state, county, we've all got to do much more on. But the city's primary responsibility has been sort of emergency shelter and housing. You know, it's, it's typically the, the behavioral health and the addiction component. We want to be the house for that. That's what the gateway's for. But the providers involve our hospital system and everything in between. So I think what we have is a path forward. And it's very near. The fact that we're opening chunks of the gateway like every six months is a really good thing. And so I actually think that number is going to move in the right direction because of the sort of solutions that we're offering, but continues to be a huge challenge. What can you tell us about the latest for that facility and what is still ahead? Kind of curious, you know, you mentioned about about 500 people a day are getting help at the gateway. And and that's, you know, to be clear, not 500 people staying overnight there, but that's right. receiving medical services or treatment services. There's a handful of providers that are over there. Mm-hmm. We know there are some overnight beds. It's, I think, around 100 at this point. But mm-hmm. what is the latest here at that facility? What's next? What's ahead? There's two large chunks ahead. Uh, one is an additional 200 beds, roughly. That's what we want to fill out over the next year. And that gives us some real capacity when you're doing small, you know, chunks of like 50 beds here, 50 beds there, and you have a thousand people, even in the point in time count, it's just not big enough. Right. So that's what the gateway is about in terms of scale. And this idea, you know, this was an old idea that was actually from the past administration that a lot of folks, including at the time, UNMH business community were very supportive of it. Obviously the homeless providers were very supportive of it. The idea was you need to have one place that is large enough where we can use it to sort people to smaller providers and to experts. So hence the term gateway, like you're only supposed to stay there maybe a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, and then you're off into housing or specific providers and so forth. So the next piece is 200 beds, but the biggest thing is the emergency 24 seven drop off. And so this has been the other problem that was identified in New Mexico is right now there is nowhere to go. So on a Saturday afternoon, either you're homeless, you see a homeless person or your family's homeless, where can you go literally to get help and spend the night off the street? The answer is nowhere. Right now, there's a barrier for every place you could go. So either they're closed because it's a Saturday or there's gender barriers. Some shelters only men or women, or you can't be like, you know, on fentanyl or you can't be, you know, there's all sorts of important reasons why these are closed. So One of the challenges that was identified almost 10 years ago, we have to have somewhere 24 seven to take people besides the emergency room or jail. And neither of those are good answers. And so that's the other part of the gateway that's opening next year. So until we fix that, uh, we're always going to have this challenge. I think that's one of the reasons why we got to this point today. So that's coming online next year too, which I think is really going to make a big difference. Any other forward-looking plans that you have for next year to continue addressing homelessness in Albuquerque? Certainly there's two in particular. One is we're continuing to uh, support an increase in housing. So, you know, it's really not ever a good idea to generalize the homeless population because they have very specific needs. And I think we all understand there's a large population that has to do with addiction. But the point is there's also a huge chunk that they actually just need housing. And so- We know that we're short 20,000 housing units roughly in the city of Albuquerque. And 20,000 is a big number. 
And this also has to do with our housing prices skyrocketing. So what the city's doing is we're saying, look, let's take some of these dilapidated hotels or older buildings and convert them into apartments, basically. And all flavors, some of them are market rate, some of them are supportive housing. We want across the board. We have such a housing shortage that it even includes, I mean, economically, it even includes big houses. You know, that's why the, the houses, the prices of big houses are going up too. So we need all sorts of housing, but the city's trying to do, you know, the most bang for the buck. So this is why we, we bought a hotel out by Los Altos Park that we're converting. We're looking at doing another one next year, maybe two next year. And we're also supporting private entities who are trying to build mixed use housing developments. And so we just passed two of those uh, the other night at council for another 150 units. So our housing numbers are, uh, we're going to continue to support those. So, I mean, if you look at next year, we should have anywhere between 200 to 400 new units online. That's a great thing for our community. And it hits a lot of different aspects, whether it's housing prices or homelessness. So you can expect that in the next year too. Another next year question, and this one kind of centers around crime. There is the upcoming legislative session. We've had a couple years in a row now, or I think three years in a row now, this would be the fourth, if I'm correct, of the Metro Crime Initiative and priorities to come out of there. And while I know you've discussed some progress in realizing some of those priorities, I think about the warrant roundup was among those priorities, um, retail crime bill that passed that lets prosecutors aggregate a bunch of crimes all into one that passed as well. But I think, you know, as, as clear kind of even by the, the latest look at the 2024 priorities, right? The lion's share of things that the Metro Crime Initiative have talked about are still sort of TBD. It's not that anyone has shut them down necessarily, but they also haven't progressed forward. So with that in mind, what are the major priorities for the upcoming legislative session in context to this Metro Crime Initiative? I'll run through them with you. I think the one thing I want to start with is that the Metro Crime Initiative is a really interesting concept because we no one has ever done it before, meaning no one ever sat down and said, okay, I'm going to support other entities with what they think will help with crime. So it does start from listening. So it's like, okay, BCSO, what would help you? Court system, what would help you? You know, behavioral health system, what would help you? Of course, APD, what would help you? That's where this comes from. And that's very different than us just sitting like in a whiteboard or having a meeting and saying, hey, you know, what do we got to do about crime? And I think that's also why it's been so meaningful in a sense that we keep coming back to it because it literally is a reflection of listening to folks who are in the criminal justice system. That's what the Metro Crime Initiative is. It's not coming from a white paper. It's not coming from out of state or anything like that. So what they say and what we're going to continue to pursue is a couple of things. There are some loopholes absolutely in our criminal code that create these situations where people essentially have, you know, this revolving door effect in the system, whether they're out on bail or there's an unserved warrant while they're, they're being processed in the criminal justice system. Well, look, that's a function of funding in the criminal justice system. And as you mentioned, this warrant notion most officers in Albuquerque Police Department, which are the ones I talk to, they will tell you the number one thing you can do in the short term to reduce crime is get the people off the street who have already, a judge has already said should not be on the street, the most dangerous people by definition. And it turns out in our town, I mean, we have 5,000 of these violent felony warrants, outstanding, 5,000. And interestingly, the whole number, by the way, I think is something like 40,000 outstanding warrants, but it is true. Those are for like traffic tickets and things like that. So we're not talking about those. 
So to do this, we have to fund overtime for officers. So it does come down to funding and we have to work together across agencies to, to sort of go through this backlog. And so that is the number one thing we can do. And so we're asking again for that. And then we're asking to close some of these loopholes that uh, allow people to come back in and out. And then we're also saying, and this has been core to why our homicide rate is down. I'm giving you a really long answer, but I'll bear with me a little bit longer. For the first time in a decade, our arrest rate is in the 90th percentile. So like if you shoot someone in Albuquerque, we will catch you and arrest you. And the reason why is really actually simple. Number one, we put a lot of funding and people into our investigative division. So it's the focus of the officers is number one. But number two is the technology that we're using. So we have gunshot detection technology in certain parts of the city. We have 20,000 cameras. That's a lot of cameras. And we also have license plate readers. And so now, you know, somebody shoots someone, we collect the shell casing, we run that through the database, all technology. Then we find, we use the cameras to find the car. Then we run the license plate with the license plate. We can do this in a matter of days and we can catch people. And we can have a good case that keeps them in jail. So we need more of this. It's shown clearly the technology is driving, bringing down our homicide rate. And so the biggest ask around the, the Metro Crime Initiative is, you know what, this shouldn't just be APD. I want to make sure that whether it's Sandoval County or whether it's Rio Rancho or Tejeras, everyone is part of the Metro Area Real-Time Crime Center software program so we can all talk to each other and we can all utilize these technological tools. Because in an environment where not everyone, you know, it's it, all across America, it's difficult to get police officers. So this notion that we can just hire hundreds more officers, which by the way, was my notion when I first ran. This I is remember. why yeah. it's good to have, you know, I try and learn. We still try that and our numbers have gone up every year, but there's no way we can actually, again, scale to meet our criminal challenges. So the answer is technology. The other answer is civilianization, which I'll, I'll hold for maybe another question. Okay. I did want to ask about the Albuquerque Police Department because, you know, it was also announced this year that they are closer than they've ever been to be fully in compliance with the Department of Justice Settlement Agreement, which we know has been a longtime goal since the Department of Justice came in with its findings in 2014 when Chris and I were just young baby reporters. How are you feeling about the progress, though, that APD has made and what still needs to be done under that settlement agreement? So I thought about this and you asked me about good things that happened this year. We're now in a place and I think it's we're 97 percent compliant. I think that might officially be coming out or is it's we're right there. And here's what that means, I think, for Albuquerque. First thing is, unfortunately, there's still a phase after being 100% compliant or at compliance. So it doesn't mean that we're totally done. It doesn't mean that we don't have to spend all this money on resources. That's I'm good doing the bad news up first. But the good news is, look, we, we have made more progress in the last two years than we did in the last 12. And that is an amazing thing. And it's in large part credit to everyone who's involved in this, uh, whether it's the police department or the advocates and everyone in between. What we've done is we've said, look, we're going to do reform our way. We're going to embrace it and make sure that it sticks. And that's different than other strategies. When it first came out, you know, everyone's like, well, let's check all these compliance boxes and do the paperwork and we'll move on. Well, the monitors called us out for not having real change. So then we said, okay, we're going to do whatever the monitor says. That didn't work either because, you know, not everything that works in Portland is going to work here. So now this was the big change two years ago. We do it our way. And when we say it, this has to do with how we use force. 
and then how we hold ourselves accountable when it's not done appropriately. And this is the final step, which we announced. Now we have our own in-house monitoring team. So we have a path out. And I know that I'm very confident that, you know, in my administration, we're going to get out of this compliance phase and then we'll be into self-monitoring phase. And so this means it's clarity for our officers, clarity for our community, and it's the costs are extremely high also for all this external court mandated things. But most importantly, our officers, they can just do their job and they know the rules for, for engagement of force. And so does the community and we can self-correct. So this is, you know, where our department should have been. That's why we got into the CASAs because we didn't have any of this. And so for us, this is a major transformation that I think going forward will also prevent things like from future CASAs and, and issues like this for decades to come. So we're really building something for the next generation. One of the big things that was talked about in 2014 was there was a culture. And I think there became a very clear rift between the public and the police department with many people saying out in the public that the police just don't care about the public. I think you could generally surmise it as that. And you weren't mayor at the time. Perhaps you had that feeling too, being a citizen looking on from the outside in. Has the culture shifted? So, you know, culture change is, is tough to do. It's also really hard to measure. But I think people would tell you yes. And I do remember an early conversation with the monitor. I mean, look, first off, I'm never supposed to say like what the monitor said. So we'll just. <laughs> he notoriously is very yeah, quiet. He exactly. Talks to the and, judge. you know, it was made clear to me that at the end of the day, usually to really change the culture, what it takes is to get the culture right in the academy and then have enough turnover so that like 51% of your department is actually different officers than the situation when you were talking about. And I think this is why I have confidence in this. We're at that place. We've been doing reform long enough and we've been retraining everyone long enough that now there are so many new officers that came in under the CASA that they actually just view their jobs different. It's sort of that guardian uh, mentality instead of warrior mentality. And so I think, you know, you can't, it's a good thing we started when we did and that we pushed hard on that front because now we're sort of bearing the fruits of that. That's one thing. The second thing is our discipline procedures are really clear. Now everyone agrees, like the officers don't fight back about discipline because they know the rules in advance. And so that, like anything, eventually has a, a huge culture change effect because you're literally setting the tone for what you can and can't do up front. And before that was ambiguous. And if not, people would argue in some cases, maybe encouraged as a way to fight crime, wrongly so. Discretionary. So, yeah. And so that I think is something that, um, I mean, unless someone comes in and messes it up, which I hope doesn't happen, that's going to stay. In wanting to get to a few more topics worth checking in on here for the city of Albuquerque, you know, we, we talked about quality of life side, big projects coming into fruition. Finally, one of them, I think that you noted the old ideas finally starting to see some steam and one of them steam being a pun, I guess you could say is the rail yards. It seems like there have been some major changes to note in 2023 and really even over the last several years. But 2023, I think more recently saw sort of progress with CNM's film education facility. My impression, though, is that while there is a lot of progress on that site, it is an old building and it was used for a very different purpose back in the day. There's a lot of remediation that still needs to be done, whether it's roofs or whether it's, you know, uh, checking out the soil for all of the 
contaminants that may still be in certain parts here and there. It seems that there is still a lot of money and perhaps private buy-in or investment that is needed to fully realize the facility. But you tell me, where do you see the rail yards right now? And what is the timeline you're looking at for the future of the rail yards? What's next? So I was a a speech I gave a while ago to a fairly large audience and somebody kind of said like, oh, Keller, you know, you're just doing all these old ideas. And I was like, you know, you're kind of right because they were good ideas. And so revitalizing the rail yards is another, it's a huge piece of like downtown resuscitation and every mayor has agreed with this. And so I do too. So, you know, that's true. But to your point, the breakthrough was we did two things early on that now we're seeing the fruits of. One is we used to have it under master contract with this company called Cemetar. And I remember actually tearing up that contract unlike my second day in office. And that was actually, that was, I mean, I didn't know it at the time. I thought it was the right thing to do. But I said, I said, the rail yards, we're going to take responsibility for it. It's going to, we're going to sink or swim based on ourself, not on an out-of-state company. So that enabled us to do the next thing, which is that fortunately a couple of years, the governor and the state, they were able to pitch in for some funding and we fixed the roof. The irony is when you fix the roof, all of a sudden you can start using the building and it was hard and expensive to fix because it's a historic building. But look, things take a while. This took like three years. So lo and behold, roof is fixed. All of a sudden we can have tenants. And then our goal was we want one anchor tenant that is going to bring hundreds of people there every day. Well, one of the things that does that is a school and especially somebody like CNM. And so when we put this partnership together with CNM and to create a film academy and with the state. This is that anchor tenant that is going to bring hundreds of people to the rail yards every day. And they're also typically young people, creative people. It's going to have a multiplier effect in terms of helping the area around it. But it's also going to literally utilize that huge space as a film training studio. But like inside it. So the other workaround is you can't really touch the walls and everything else. So it's like a building in a building. This is the construction starts, I think, this month. And it does involve a lot of long time consuming and cost consuming uh, funding, but it's all done. All the funding is there and the plan is done. And so I think in 18 months, those hundreds of students are going to start showing up every day for the first time in that literal space in the heart of our city in like 80 years. That's awesome. Looking ahead to next year, what do you think your biggest challenge will be? I think in general, one is our biggest challenge is to, I think, follow through with what we've been talking about here today. You know, we've said that we're actually going to be able to get these big things done. And that's different than the last several decades. So what we run up against is things like asbestos at the Gateway Center, which delayed that project a year. You know, so I think there is always this challenge about, and now there's like supply chain challenges and cost inflation and things like this. So our biggest challenge is really pushing towards delivery and of, you name it, whether it's Gateway, Rail Trail, Rail Yards, Stadium, all of these things, and even the CASA, that's going to be a big challenge. But I think we also have to look nationally at what's happening. Fentanyl is the primary cause, let's say, if you have to pick one, of both crime and homelessness. So the answer to your question, I think, for America and Albuquerque is fentanyl. And we don't have the systems to deal with it. We don't even have the pharmacology to deal with it. We don't have the public awareness to deal with it. It is destroying our cities from within. And that by far and away, I think is our biggest challenge next year. 
Anything else? We hit on a lot of topics today, Mayor, but there's anything else that you would like to add? You know, just one, the connection between things like fentanyl and crime and homelessness is our new department, the Albuquerque Community Safety Department. That department is finishing up its first year of full operations. And here again, it's kind of that same concept where I was like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a social worker respond to a down and out instead of a police officer? Police officer can do crime fighting and uh, also that person can get some help. Well, we're doing this. We created, it's the first of its kind in the country, an entire department, almost 100 first responders that are now operating 24-7 and they can take you to services. So like they can take you to the gateway or they can take you to where you need to go in a way that officers and EMTs can't because they have to go to the emergency room or to jail. So this is like the connective tissue that is going to help us deal with this. And here again, we see a situation where Albuquerque is ahead of the curve. And on this one, we're way ahead of the curve. So that gives me a lot of hope because next year will be the first full year under 24-7 response for that department. And in your time, you know, you are at the midterm of your second term here mm-hmm. as we're speaking to you. Do you see that this city has changed since you started your leadership here? That's a really good question. And I think it's been a, I think it's been a journey of, in many ways, transformation towards a very different, bigger, more vibrant city. But we've had to dip down, whether it was COVID or crime and homelessness increasing, it's not been easy. The answer to your question is for the first time in a decade, population's going up, income is going up. Crime is actually down. Almost every category other than retail crime is down, including homicide is down almost 20%. So for the first time, the indicators are actually going in the right direction. And when I say first time, that's not just me, that's like in the last decade. So for me, I thought this would happen a lot faster. (laughs) I will tell you that. I'm sure we all wish that it did. But I am more optimistic this year than I ever have been because those indicators are finally going in the right direction. And then we, on top of that, we have these other amazing projects for our families. So I feel better at the end of this year than I have at the end, because every other year I'm explaining why everything's still down. And so that's what's great about this year. Mayor Tim Keller, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Mayor Tim Keller for joining us for this kind of year-end episode, taking a look at things that have happened over the last year in Albuquerque and some of the stuff that his administration is looking forward to. We appreciate the conversation. If you guys have an idea or someone you'd like to hear from on our podcast, feel free to reach out. I'm Gabrielle.Burkhard at KRQE.com via email and GWorkNM on social media. I'm also at Chris McKee TV and Chris.McKee at KRQE.com. Thanks for listening.